He was born Eric Weiss in Budapest, Hungary in 1874. He died in Detroit, Michigan on October 31st, 1926. During his career, he became the world's most famous escape artist. His stage name was Harry Houdini. And he was a master at picking locks, holding his breath underwater, and contorting his body in all kinds of shapes in order to elude the various straitjackets that became a regular part of his stage act. He developed these escape stunts and would perform them live before thousands would plunk down their hard-earned cash to come in and see him escape, knowing that he would, but kind of half wondering if this time he might not make it. It was very common for him to be shackled and then immersed in a tank of water and then have that sealed over him. A curtain would be then drawn in front and the timer would begin to count down the seconds that would become minutes. It would stretch into time until women in the audience would faint thinking there's no way he could possibly still be alive. As part of his act, he would challenge people to hold their breath with him as he was plunged under the water. Regularly, he would have himself bound in a regulation straitjacket and then his feet chained and he would be hoisted by a crane 20 or 30 feet in the air. And then in public in front of a vast crowd that would gather to watch, he would wriggle his way out of the straitjacket, all the while suspended upside down. He set the pace for the modern escape routine. He was a master of escape. But there is one who is even greater than Harry Houdini. One who is more difficult to keep under lock and key. And that is your tongue. It is your tongue. One commentator writes, The tongue is contained in a cage of teeth and lips, but it still escapes. How true that is. How true that is. Open your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles available to you. They're in the pew rack in front of you, or if you're on an aisle, they're under your seat. If you'll take one of those Bibles out and open it up to page 1209, you'll arrive at James chapter 3. This morning we'll be finishing out the third chapter here, looking at verses 13 through 18. Last week we heard a message entitled, Two and a Half Ounces of Trouble. Two and a Half Ounces of Trouble. And, and in that text, James painted for us a very sobering and a very penetrating picture of the evil of the human tongue. This week he moves on to the topic of wisdom. Moves on to the topic of wisdom. And, and this is a related topic to the tongue. 
It's related to the tongue. Right talk comes through the right means of thought. And the right means of thought is not, a, not measured by one's intelligence. It is measured by one's wisdom. So the issue of wisdom very definitely plays into the use of the tongue. And so James connects these thoughts together for us. Every Tuesday morning, I gather in the Fountain Cafe with a group of young men for what we call the rabbit trail. And we gather together and frequently we'll read through a book or chapter rather of the book of Proverbs that pertains to that particular day of the month. And then we will work our way through those individual Proverbs together. And the purpose of that is is that we might grow in wisdom, that we might grow in wisdom. We call it the rabbit trail because we begin in the book of Proverbs, but we frequently end up somewhere else because some interesting topic is brought up along the way and it takes us on an exploration of the Word of God. It's a wonderful time together. Well, this morning in the text before us, beginning in verse 13 of James 3, we'll find three lessons. Three lessons regarding wisdom so that we might know it, And we might pursue it wholeheartedly. Three lessons regarding wisdom so that we might know it and we might pursue it wholeheartedly. The first lesson is that wisdom is practical, not theoretical. The first lesson is that wisdom is practical, not theoretical. You know, when we open our mouths to speak... We assume that we have something to say. It kind of it is not spoken, but it is implied. It is assumed when your mouth opens to speak. There's an assumption you have something to say. And in fact, we assume our own wisdom. We assume our own wisdom. By the very act of speaking. Well, James this morning wants to put that assumption to the test. He wants to put the assumption to the test. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Do you think you're wise? Do you think you're understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. To all those who will step forward and assert their claim to wisdom, James wants to put us to the test. And he says that the test of our wisdom is not what we know, but what we do. It is not our knowledge of theology that validates our wisdom. It is our skill in living in accordance with the knowledge that we have. That validates our wisdom. This is the same basic theme in this book of James. James came from Missouri. That is a little-known Bible fact. That James came from Missouri because Missouri is the show-me state. You bet. And that's what James is all about. James is all about saying, show me what you got. Let's see whether there's any substance, any reality to what you're claiming. Chapter 2, of course... That's how he deals with the whole issue of faith, right? 
You say you have faith. Show me your faith. Put it on display and put it on display through your life. Well, he takes the same approach here with wisdom. Put it on display by your life. You think you have wisdom. The very opening of your mouth is the assumption that you do. Well, let's put it to the test. Let's find out. Is there any substance behind those lips? And he says that there are two practical results that are produced by wisdom. Verse 13. It produces two results. Second half of the verse. Good behavior. And then what he says is the gentleness of wisdom. Wisdom produces good works. It produces good works. Now, James is not speaking here about the occasional good work that someone might do. He's referring to a lifestyle of good works. Wisdom produces a life that is regularly involved in producing good deeds. It is a, it is a measure of the overall direction behavior and conduct of a person's life, he says. It is the day after day, week in, week out, slow and steady progress of a person's life. We might say it's not the perfection of one's life, but the direction of one's life that James is saying proves our wisdom. A life characterized by good deeds. He says, in effect, that wisdom is measured by the scars of having fallen down and then gotten getting back up again and moving forward. That's what wisdom is backed up by. It's learning from our mistakes and then plotting ahead. So it's not a statement of perfection, but a statement of direction. By the way, that's why the scriptures generally equate wisdom with age. That's why generally those two are put together. Because life is full of starters. There's no shortage of people who begin the Christian race. Unfortunately, there are many who never finish. They drop out along the way. And so the question of wisdom is a, is a question of, are you still in the race? Is your life still characterized by pursuing after Christ that manifests itself in a life of good deeds? One of the dangers of virtually all young men is the danger of discontentment with the older generation. The young are quick to see all the flaws of, the, of those that have gone before them, and they're equally quick to point them all out and tell the older generation how they can fix them. That is a particularly young man's problem. Add a little Bible knowledge to the mix, and then you have a very potent mixture for discontentment in the church. Good works over a long period of time are a measure of wisdom, not just a flash in the pan. Secondly, James tells us the end of verse 13, that humility, humility, is another measure of one's wisdom. The word can be translated gentleness or meekness or humility here at the end of the verse. The gentleness of wisdom. 
The idea behind the word here is a, is a heart attitude that is full of, of mildness and gentleness towards other people. It's a person characterized by humility who can give and take correction and instruction. They don't, it's not only that they can hand it out, they can receive it well also. For the ancient Greeks, and they are much like our world, the notion of meekness or the notion of humility was a contemptible trait. The idea that someone would humble themselves was thought to be a weakness, not a strength. But in the Christian church, it became a distinctive mark of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Lord himself speaks of his own life and ministry as one of meekness, gentleness, and humility. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, he invites people to come to him and and to be his disciple. And, And he says it this way, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in soul. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be gentle and humble of soul. It is to be meek. It is to express humility. To be able to give and to receive, or importantly, correction. My friends, wisdom is not measured by academic achievement. It doesn't matter how many degrees one accumulates. In fact, 32 degrees is freezing. That's right. It is freezing. So it's not about what's up here. It's about how has what's up here affected the rest of your life. By the way, that's why the Apostle Paul makes no requirement for seminary training for elders. He doesn't say that in order to qualify to be an elder, one must be seminary trained. It's not a measure of one's academic achievement that qualifies one. Wisdom is not learned by sitting and listening to a lecture. We do not become wise by listening to lectures on wisdom, but by applying the truth in our lives in real situations. That's how wisdom comes. So the first lesson that James has for us is that wisdom is practical and not theoretical. And he has another one. Verses 14 to 16. That wisdom is from God and not man. Wisdom comes from God and not man. Second lesson. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. There's a contrast here. You see it at the beginning of the verse 14. The use of the word but signifies the contrast. Wisdom is revealed in good deeds, to be sure. That is true wisdom. But there is another kind of wisdom that James introduces here. It's a wisdom that is produced by jealousy and and selfish ambitions. It is, if I can call it, a worldly wisdom. A worldly wisdom. James is concerned about those in the church of his day 
whose motivating desire is to promote themselves and their own opinions. Those in the church who are working towards their own self-interests. He speaks here of, verse 14, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. You see it. It's those who have an agenda in the church that they are promoting. They want to see it their way. They want to see it conformed to their notion of what it ought to be like. They have an agenda. And it's not too hard to imagine what kind of speech comes out of the mouth of someone who is bitterly jealous and selfishly ambitious, is it? Particularly when, according to verse 6, their mouth is merely a vent pipe to hell. We know what kind of speech is going to come out of their mouth. Rather than produce the outward results of good deeds and humility, instead their life produces an arrogance that James tells us lies against the very gospel that they say they believe. You see it, verse 14. Do not be arrogant, the end of the verse, and so lie against the truth. The truth is a reference here to the gospel. The gospel. My friends, the gospel produces humility. The gospel produces humility because it enables us to recognize who God really is and who we really are. It strips away the the charade and it reveals the reality of life. The gospel does that. Because the gospel teaches us that God is sovereign and holy, right? The gospel teaches us that we are sinful and guilty and entirely not sovereign. The gospel teaches us that Jesus died for us because we were helpless and in desperate need of a Savior. The gospel teaches us that God raised Jesus from the dead in order to rule and judge us. The gospel teaches us that we are called to humble our hearts and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be saved. And the gospel teaches us that the church belongs to Jesus Christ, not to me and not to you. It is the church of Jesus Christ purchased with his own blood, Acts chapter 20. And so the gospel is the exact opposite of arrogance. In fact, the gospel is like halon gas to the fire of a proud tongue. It just sucks all the oxygen out and suffocates the fires of a proud tongue. That's what the gospel will do. So when we say we believe the gospel and yet we act with arrogance, James says we are lying against the truth. End of verse 14. We are lying against that truth. Now there is another kind of wisdom. Verse 15. There is another kind of wisdom. It is the false wisdom of this world. It is the wisdom that doesn't come down from above but percolates and bubbles up from that which is below. He describes it in verse 15 as earthly, natural, and demonic. It is a wisdom that comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
if we can say it that way. Now, there are those that are wise in the ways of the world. And they can give you advice, and many will. They'll tell you what is necessary to get ahead in life. How to play office politics so you can secure your position. That is a worldly wisdom. And it is a wisdom, my friends, that has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. We do not play politics in the body of Christ. For that does not come from above. That bubbles up from below. And it produces disastrous results in the church. Just let your eyes glance down to the beginning of chapter 4. Because chapter 4 is related. It produces the disastrous results of quarrels and conflicts in the church. This worldly wisdom, this notion of what do I need to do to, to get ahead in the world, to manipulate people, to use people, does nothing but create quarrel and conflict in the community of believers. James goes on, verse 16, and he says, Just like godly wisdom produces two results, so does worldly wisdom. Verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Do you see that? Worldly wisdom produces its own results. It has its own fruit. It produces, first, James says, disorder. It produces disorder. This is a very interesting term. Disorder. It's a, it's a state characterized by confusion or, or disturbances or restlessness. It is that the, the body is sort of seething and bubbling and foaming. There's a related word that James uses over in chapter 1 and verse 8 to the word translated disorder here. There he's speaking of the double-minded man, James chapter 1, verse 8. And he says the double-minded man, related word here, is unstable in all his ways. Disorder, instability in the community of believers. It's unstable. Chapter 3 and verse 8, James again uses a word that is related to the word translated disorder here. So in 3, 8... He talks about taming the tongue, and he says, and here's the related word, it is a restless evil. Restlessness. So instability and restlessness are related ideas to disorder. This is what characterizes a congregation in which worldly wisdom is prevailing. It is restless. It is unstable. It is disturbed. It is confused. It's chaotic. It's turbulent. That's what a, a church body looks like in which worldly wisdom is prevailing. James goes on here, verse 16, chapter 3, to speak of the second result of worldly wisdom. And he says it's every evil thing. Do you see that? Every evil thing. The idea here behind this phrase in the Greek is a, is a good-for-nothingness. A good-for-nothingness 
It speaks of the impossibility of anything good coming from the situation in which worldly wisdom is prevailing. A church, a body, a group of believers in which worldly wisdom is now in operation is incapable of producing anything of lasting value, James would say. He speaks here of every evil. You see it again? Every evil thing. What he says is that it's the wrong kind of wisdom that brings forth every kind of evil practice imaginable. All the junk that happens in churches, where does it come from? James tells us it comes as a result of worldly wisdom prevailing among that group of believers. This is very serious stuff. Many, many years ago, my wife and I were part of a small Southern Baptist church in New England. It's a very small body, under 100. And in this church, there were two significant families, two power players in the congregation. And whenever a, a new family, a new visitors would come to visit the church, one or the other, and usually both of those power players would saddle up alongside them and, and begin to speak to them and try to enlist them and pull them into their orbit. Their circle. Get them on their side. These two power players, they would feud privately and openly in the church. Whenever a new pastor would come in, they would unite together and they would turn on the pastor until they drove him out. One time they just stopped paying a guy. They just One of them was the treasurer, and so he just stopped writing the paychecks until the man couldn't afford to live any longer, and he left. And then the two of them would turn back on each other again and begin their, their horrible feuding. I can remember one time when the husband of one of the power families didn't get elected to a particular office in the church that he wanted. And so they came on a Saturday afternoon and they removed the organ and part of the sound system because they had donated it many years ago and it was really theirs. So they stripped it out. And they said they would return it when he was elected to the position that he wanted to be in. Disorder and every kind of evil thing when worldly wisdom prevails. My friends, listen to this. God is a God of peace. God is a God of peace. And therefore, factions in the church cannot claim God's support for their cause. Do you understand that? God is a God of peace. Therefore, any faction in the church cannot claim that they are operating on God's behalf. God would have a church that is united and peaceful. Not clawing at each other's throats. Wisdom is from God, not from man. When we give in to using the stuff from man, we will tear the body apart. That takes us to our third. Our third lesson with regard to wisdom. 
Wisdom produces peace, not strife. Wisdom produces, true wisdom that is, produces peace and not strife. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, James says. The third lesson is that wisdom produces peace, not strife. It produces peace, not strife. Notice again, he begins with a contrast, verse 17. You see it? He's contrasting now true wisdom, the wisdom from above, with that which he has just been explaining, which is the wisdom of the world, the wisdom from below. And he's going to describe here for us in verse 17, what is the, what is the, the outcome, the desired outcome of this godly wisdom? What is it like? What is godly wisdom like? And that will let us know what it'll produce. Just like true faith, true wisdom is identified by the quality of life it produces. It all comes back to show me what you got. Let it be borne out in your life. Verse 17 reminds me of Paul's statements in Galatians chapter 5, right? Verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. It's not an identical list. It's just kind of a similar idea. There it is the fruit of a life produced under the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God in Galatians 5. James is speaking now about a life that is produced by the godly wisdom from above. It's kind of a similar idea. Now he says, verse 17, that the the first and the preeminent attribute that describes heavenly wisdom is purity, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. That is its preeminent quality. It is a pure wisdom. That is that it is an innocent wisdom. It is a morally blameless wisdom. It is the source, it is the key for all the other virtues that James will list the rest of the verse. Shouldn't surprise us, by the way, right? That... He begins by saying that heavenly wisdom is pure since it comes from heaven, the very throne room of God, who is himself absolutely pure, absolutely spotless, undefiled and blameless. Wisdom is pure because God is pure. And flowing from the the inner purity of wisdom, James gives us six other qualities here in the verse. He just kind of scratches out a list. This is not an exhaustive list. This is a representative list. A representative list of what true godly wisdom is like. He begins and he says it's peaceable. Do you see it? It's peaceable. That is that it desires and fosters peace. It is peace-loving. Godly wisdom is peace-loving. 
Because it restrains discord. It, it promotes the right relationships among people. That's what godly wisdom does. It's all about body life. Beyond that, he says it's gentle. Godly wisdom is gentle. The idea here is that it, that it yields to the wishes of other people. How do I know whether this is worldly wisdom or godly wisdom? If it's godly wisdom, it's willing to yield to others. It is worldly wisdom that is so fixed, so arrogant, so inflexible, so unwilling to compromise that it tears a body apart. James says, no, 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 no. The wisdom that, that is pure and comes from God is a, is a wisdom that has a kind of a sweet reasonableness about it. By the way, this character quality of gentle, according to the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. It says, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, he must be gentle. Not pugnacious, verse 3, 1 Timothy 3, but gentle. He must be a gentle man. This is a character requirement for a leader in the church of God. He must be a gentle man, not a, not a pugnacious man, not a striker, not a brawler, not a man who resorts to his fists, but a man who knows how to yield to others. My friends, leading among the people of God as elders requires the ability in a room to hash things out with men of very strong passions and opinions. And yet at the end of the evening to be able to come out of that room in a unified way. That means you can't win all the time. If you always have to win, if it always has to be your way, if the outcome always has to look like exactly what you want it to look like, you have no place at the table of the elders. The elders have the ability, the God-given ability to yield, to be gentle. James says beyond to be gentle, they must be reasonable. Wisdom is reasonable. A reasonable man is a man who is easily persuaded. A man who is open to reason, willing to listen, willing to defer. That's the idea. He's willing to defer. He's willing to listen. These three characteristics, peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, they kind of stand in a stark contrast, don't they, to the, to the wisdom of the world, which is jealous and selfishly ambitious. Beyond that, James says, that the wisdom from above, godly wisdom, is full of mercy and good fruits. Full of mercy and good fruits. The notion here is that it's, it's more than just a feeling of, of pity. It's that it's true wisdom produces action. It produces deeds of mercy, practical helps. It actually has shoe leather to it. It gets up and it goes and it accomplishes things. And again, it's, it's kind of the exact opposite of the every evil thing that worldly wisdom produces. Wisdom from above produces acts of mercy and practical helps. James goes on in verse 17. He says, mercy from above is, is unwavering. 
unwavering. This is an interesting Greek word. It occurs only here in the New Testament. And there is a a fair amount of uncertainty, actually, as to what this word really means. If you look down at your Bible translation, depending on what you're using, you'll see it translated in different ways. The New American Standard translates it as unwavering. That is the idea of loyal, that it's loyal. But some of the other major translations, they opt for the idea of impartial or without favoritism. So you might see that in your Bible as you're looking on. Actually, I think here that the NASB got it wrong. So I think in the context, it seems to me that impartial or without favoritism fits the context that James is building here better than the idea of loyalty. So I would understand what James is talking about here is that is that the wisdom from above, God's wisdom is a wisdom that is without favoritism. It's a wisdom without partiality. Again, it's in a context of a body. It's a, it's a wisdom that doesn't take sides in factions and pit one group against another. It's impartial. It's without favoritism. And then he says it's without hypocrisy. Verse 17, the end of the verse. It is without hypocrisy or it's sincere, we could say. It is sincere. It is sincere. It is is free from having to try to impress people. Godly wisdom doesn't need to impress people because it's not about me, right? I don't have to look good in front of everybody if I am walking in godly wisdom. It's only when I'm walking in my own wisdom that's coming from my own opinions that I now need to prevail over everybody else. I have to win every argument because it's all about me. It's my status, my ego. And James says, no, 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 no. God's wisdom is a sincere wisdom. It's, it's free from all of those entrapments. You can see the dramatic contrast between the wisdom from above and the wisdom that bubbles up from below. And depending what wisdom is prevailing in the church will speak to the issues of that church. We find a church that is fighting with one another and bickering with one another and being torn apart by division and strife. We know the wisdom that is prevailing among that group of people. But we find a church in which there is a a sweet reasonableness, in which there is a love for one another, in which there is a willingness to defer to one another, to consider other people's opinions, to not have to always win, to to be willing to let the other guy come in first. When that is the attitude that prevails, then we are among a group of people walking in godly wisdom. And it is a wonderful, sweet fellowship and a very appealing fellowship, by the way, to those who do not know Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, if we claim to be disciples of the Prince of Peace, what should characterize our time together? It has to be peace, doesn't it? We have to be a people of peace. And that's what James is saying. He concludes his teaching here in in verse 18 with something that appears like a proverb. It's kind of a proverbial saying here at the end in verse 18. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, he says. Maybe we could 
could say it this way. Those who walk in godly wisdom are peacemakers. Those who walk in godly wisdom are are peacemakers, and they sow peace wherever they go. And the result of that peace is a harvest of righteousness. Those walking in godly wisdom, they've got seed bags over their shoulders. They're like Johnny Appleseed. They're, They're walking along, and they're just throwing out handfuls of peace seed. And that peace seed, when it hits the ground, the fertile ground, and it it begins to spring up. And it produces righteousness among the people of God. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who go around scattering peace seed. For they shall be called the sons of God. Last week, James talked about the dangers of unrestrained speech. Next week, he'll address in chapter 4 the significant conflicts that can develop among among a community of believers. Sandwiched between these two topics of the tongue and conflict is his teaching on wisdom his teaching on wisdom. My friends, this is not by accident. This is not by accident. Wisdom is the greatest need for all of us. It is to to walk practically in accordance with the theological knowledge that we really have. To put it into practice. To live it out. book of Proverbs says, Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 7, wisdom is available to those who will come and get it. That's my translation, by the way. Proverbs 4, 7. Wisdom is available. Come and get it. If you really think it's valuable, come and get it. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we recognize the need? Do you recognize the need for wisdom? And if you do, will you come and get it? Will you come? Let's pray. Our Father, as James addresses us again this morning, With the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, he has the uncanny ability to cut through all the surface stuff and go right to the heart of the issue. Oh Lord, he he tears away, he, he shreds the facade of holiness and righteousness and piety that we so frequently erect around our lives, our our public persona. And he gets down to the real heart of the matter. And he says to us, O Lord, that if we are really following Christ, if Christ has really transformed us, then it's going to show. O Lord, we read these words, we hear these messages, and and we're acutely aware of our shortcomings and failures. There is not a person in this room who can walk away from this and feel 
smug and self-satisfied, to feel good about themselves. Oh, Lord, we hear these things and we recognize our desperate need of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, that's exactly what you want from us. You want this kind of hard, straight, unvarnished truth to drive us back to the cross of Christ. That we might there receive cleansing and grace in our time of need. Oh Lord, as we consider both last week's teaching on the tongue and add to it this week's with regard to the source of our wisdom, we pray for your spirit to minister truth to our hearts, to encourage us that Jesus Christ died to atone for the sins of our mouth and for our failure to walk in godliness, but to instead our reliance upon the wisdom of this world. We thank you for the atonement of Christ. We thank you that his death and burial and resurrection has freed us from our guilt, has made us new in Christ. And we rejoice in the hope of eternal life in Christ, that his resurrection life is our life. And, O oh Lord, we pray that today as we sing this final song and go forth from this place, that you would enable us to go forth with a, with a measure of comfort and confidence, not in our own strength, but in the power of what Christ has done and your Spirit is doing in our midst. Oh, Lord, I thank you for this body. I thank you, oh, Lord, for the peace and the civility and the love and the unity. And I pray, oh, Lord, as we go through together these coming days in which we will all be challenged, in which all of us will experience a, a rattling, a shaking, a disruption of our comfort zone. Oh, Lord, may you help us heed these words. That we might come out the other side shining for Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.